From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Imagine standing at the edge of the ocean, staring at the waves as you debate whether to jump in and in your own life. Because I was so psychologically damaged, that seemed like the the best way to go because I, I don't know how to swim even to this day. The sea was just calling to me. I was living in misery, you know, felt like there was something internally wrong with me that I couldn't fix. A Colorado woman shares her story of near tragedy to triumph. You just really don't know what you are capable of doing and how you can change the trajectory of your life if you give in. You know, there there's something big probably waiting right around the corner for you, but you're never going to see that if you give in. For decades, Public Radio has been a reliable source for fact-based news and independent music programming, but also for tote bags. If you don't have a public radio tote bag yet, or you just want another one, make a gift of $15 a month and our new tote bag can be yours. It's durable and spacious, features Colorado-themed graphic art, and shows off your support for the service you love. Check it out and donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, a month where mental health advocates, prevention organizations, survivors, allies, and members of the community come together to raise awareness about the alarming number of people who take their own lives each year. It's also an opportunity to raise important conversations about the stigma that surrounds suicide and draw attention to available resources. For one Colorado woman, this is a sobering reminder of the lowest point she has experienced in her life, a moment in time where she sincerely believed that taking her own life was the only way out, the only way to alleviate the excruciating pain and desperation she was experiencing in her life at that time. Jackie Abram of Aurora joins us now to share her very emotional story. Jackie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. I'm delighted to be here today. Now, we're going to cover a lot of ground in this interview, but I think the most compelling way to convey the depth of the exasperation and desperation you were experiencing in your life at that time is for you to go back to that moment when you actually planned to end it all. So at the time, I was living in California, and 24 hours before the day that I planned to commit suicide, I actually visited a beach called uh, Salt Creek Beach. Salt Creek Beach is a a beach in California that's known for surfing. It has massive waves. It's actually been featured in a number of movies. And I had never learned to swim. And so because I was so psychologically damaged, that seemed like the the best way to go because I I don't know how to swim even to this day. Um, But I did go check out the beach uh, a day before and, you know, the, the sea was just calling to me. I was living in misery, you know, felt like there was something internally wrong with me that I couldn't fix. And so the very next day I returned to that beach and, I, I again, I was just mesmerized by the water, standing on the edge, watching the waves, and 
decided that this was how I was going to end my life. So you're on the edge of this beach, almost hypnotized by the waves. Yeah. And it's really remarkable because you are a mom of two daughters who you love very much. Is there anything else you remember about what was racing through your mind? Well, during that particular week, I, I knew that I wanted my girls to be taken care of because my girls mean everything in this world to me. And so I remember going through the mindset leading up to that moment of, you know, calling my girls and saying, hey, girls, do you remember the life insurance information that I gave you? And my girls are like, yeah. And they're like, do you have it handy? You know, make sure you have it nearby in case you need it. And of course, the girls had no clue what I was considering, but I wanted to just make sure that was there, that they knew where it was and that it was readily available. Because I figured going into the sea, you obviously can't swim. You're going to drown. It's going to be considered accidental and they would still be able to collect the life insurance that I had available for them. I knew that I wanted them to be okay and that they knew where to find that information. Describe like kind of the feelings. Was it just, I just don't want to be here. I'm just tired of this pain. People are better off without me. Like what, what was actually in your mind at this time? It wasn't that I didn't want to be here. My thought process was that this world was not made for me. I cannot survive in a world that was not designed for me to thrive. Because there's a difference between surviving and there's a difference between thriving. And I wanted to thrive. I was tired of being in survival mode. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You are a Black woman. You were at the time a single mom of two daughters. And, you know, there is this longstanding myth of the Black superwoman who must not only save herself, but also save the family, save the kids, save relatives, and just kind of a lot of pressure to be extra strong for everyone else, but in many ways neglecting self and self-care. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'll just add to that. Oftentimes as a Black woman, you know, we are dehumanized to the point of people believing that our pain is less than other women. We're stronger than other women. We can tolerate more than other women. You know, we were designed to be able to handle more than other women. And so when you carry, you know, that stigma, and then you're also, like you said, responsible for everyone else, and you have this tendency to always put yourself last while putting everyone else first, you know, it really wears on you, not just mentally, but emotionally and physically as well. And so you're mm. dealing with so many different stressors, um, you know, that people think that you really should be able to deal with because you are a Black woman. So back to the beach. As you were standing there, something happened that allowed you to, for lack of a better way to put it, snap out of this dark place that you clearly were in. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, as I was standing on the edge of the ocean, and again, the sea is calling out to me, and I'm just feeling, you know, this peace, like I want to be in there. 
I got a well-timed call from my youngest daughter about 10 minutes before I decided to jump in. And I was able to step out of myself long enough to take her call. And when I answered it, all of a sudden, my youngest daughter starts screaming into the phone hysterically. And she begins telling me, you know, that she's experiencing racism in the workplace and that these people are after her and setting her up and she's about to, to lose her job. And as I'm listening to my daughter screaming into the phone, you know, I'm actually experiencing the same thing in my job. And she's a single mother like me. She's also got a son. And I knew that if I didn't do something to help her, that it wouldn't be long before she was in the same dangerous state mentally that mm. I have found myself in. And it uh, made me realize that, you know, it's not you that is experiencing this alone. There's, there's something going on with your daughter, too. You're both mm -hmm. experiencing something very similar. And so it sounds like you snapped into, as they say, mama bear mode and realized that your girls, you know, need you. They need you here. Well, Chandra, it's one thing to come after me, but it is an entirely different story to come <laughs> after my girls. Mama bear is exactly right because I went instantly into protection mode. When did you tell your daughter that her call essentially saved your life? So I packed up. I was homeless at that time, Chandra. I was homeless and I was actually uh, living out of a hotel and extended stay. Mm -hmm. I went back and packed up my belongings, my, my cats, and I came back home to Colorado to deal with what was happening to my daughter. Because here's the thing, Chandra. Even though I was in a very dangerous spot mentally, it wasn't because I didn't know how to fight the racism that I was experiencing. I knew how to fight, but I was exhausted. Um, I was racially tired of mm. having to fight and claw my way um, to success only to have the next person uh, changes in leadership. Now you're dealing with someone new, uh, send you plummeting back down to the, to the beginning again. And it was just exhausting. Mm. That's what put me in the very dangerous territory, but I knew how to fight. And so I went back to fight for my daughter. And I would imagine, of course, there is a gender component to all of this, working in corporate America as a woman and feeling, you know, maybe not seen or heard in those spaces. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point. As a Black woman, you know, if you are assertive, then they categorize you as uh, the angry Black woman. If you are quiet, then they say you're not a team player, you're not approachable. If you, you know, try to engage with folks, you know, then they say, you know, you're too friendly, too familiar. You know, there's always something. And there's one other component. For you as a Black woman, the more exceptional you are, Chandra, because let me just tell you, I was exceptional at my job, okay? I and this was in higher education. Mm -hmm. This was on the finance side of higher education. Mm. 
Hmm. And I was exceptional. And so the more exceptional you are, the bigger the target is on your back. In light of your experience, what does it mean to you when you hear that September is National Suicide Prevention Month? What comes to your mind? You know, I am so beyond grateful for the fact that I had someone that I believe God used to reach me in my, you know, moment of darkness and despair, to save me from myself. Sadly, there are a lot of people who don't get that intervention. And it's heartbreaking to think about, you know, how many people that I have personally either known or that family members or friends of mine have known that have taken their own lives that didn't have that intervention. And so it's heartbreaking how many people don't get that second chance that I got through the well-timed phone call from my daughter. Here are some statistics I've come across in regards to suicide here in Colorado. More than a thousand Coloradans each year take their own lives, one of the highest suicide rates, and the rate has continued to rise for decades. More Coloradans between the ages of 10 and 44 years old take their own lives than any other cause of death except for accidents. So it didn't happen instantaneously. It happened over a period of nearly 20 years. 20 years of operating in survival mode, working in corporate America. So you're dealing with the stress of being a Black woman in corporate America and trying to build a career for yourself, um, really reaching for the American dream, okay, that, you know, everyone says is afforded to you as a Black person and uh, everyone else has, but you're now realizing that that's not really the case. And so you're able to make it so far in your career, but then something happens in that career and you find yourself knocked off that ladder of success, spiraling downward and now starting all over again. While I can't speak for everyone, I can just tell you as a person, trying to not just survive, but thrive. And, you know, I was born and raised in Colorado Springs. And so I know a lot about Colorado. You know, there are a lot of folks who are living paycheck to paycheck, who are experiencing the same difficulties that I experienced career-wise, who are just having trouble getting to the point of thriving, but are also having difficulty just trying to survive, you know, with the rising cost of inflation, um, the the properties to buy a property here in Colorado was almost Mm. impossible. And even the cost of renting. You know, I've also in in the past done some research to know that your environments, you know, where you live and the instability of housing affects your mental health. You are absolutely right. Every community is dealing with suicide in some form or fashion. And a lot of people don't really believe in it until it actually happens in their own circle. So here's a couple of other statistics about suicide here in Colorado. According to the CDC, 22% of people died by suicide in Colorado in 2020 for every 100,000 people. And at the time, it was the nation's seventh highest suicide rate. 
states with large rural populations tend to have higher suicide rates. What do you want to say to someone who may be listening out there who right now is feeling desperate? What I would say to anyone who is considering suicide uh, right now at this very moment is, you know, I, I would not be here had it not been for uh, the call that came from my daughter 10 minutes prior. Mm. And remember, I was homeless, okay? I'm homeless. I, you know, really don't have a lot of money. I am living out of a hotel, not knowing how I'm going to pay for my next week's, you know, hotel bill. I was in a very desperate place. But if I had committed suicide, I would not be able to tell you about the successes that came after that. Mm. You know, you mentioned my book, Hush Money. You know, not only is Hush Money, you know, just changing the lives of so many people all around the world, but it really changed my life. And so you, you just really don't know what you are capable of doing and how you can change the trajectory of your life. Um, if you give in, you know, there, there's something big probably waiting right around the corner for you, but you're never going to see that if you give in. And what I did was I took that pain and that suffering, and I, I decided to pour it into a book to help people see and feel mm. and, and smell my circumstances and it resonated with so many other people who some of them were also on the verge of suicide. Well, it sounds like your message is of hope and that things can turn around. There is help out there. There are resources. And that's what we're talking about today. Your daughter made that phone call and helped you move forward from this moment of desperation outside of the book. What has helped you long-term stay away from that frame of mind? The, the book was the starting point, but that wasn't what put me on the path to healing. What put me on the path to healing was allowing myself to do something that um, up to this point, I had never allowed myself to do. Because this goes back to, you know, the the stigma attached to the, the strong Black woman. Mm -hmm. For me, everyone that would interact with me, you know, I was in a different state. And so none of my relatives were in the state that I was in. And whenever someone would call and check on me, and they would say, how's everything going, I would instantly say, Oh, everything's wonderful. Everything's fine. Things okay. are great. My job is great. My relationship is great. My house is great. Everything's just great. And I would never allow anyone to see my vulnerabilities, because I felt like I couldn't. And so when I got to this breaking point and I decided to just put it all out there and to let the people that I had been telling everything was great and wonderful for years know that, no, it really wasn't so great. I was homeless. You know, I was mm. struggling. I, I, I didn't know where I was going to get food to eat. You know, I, I, I was miserable. When I allowed people to really see what was going on with me, and I started talking about it. You know, I did get some pushback. Let me be honest with you. I got some pushback. You know, there were some people, um, including people in my family, who were saying, you're humiliating yourself. Why mm. are you telling everybody? Airing the dirty laundry of the Yes, family. yes, exactly. You're, you're humiliating yourself. It doesn't belong on an interview. But mm -hmm. there were other people who were saying, wow, 
you know, that's me. I, I'm going through that too. And I didn't think I could say anything because I, I was worried about what people would think. And so the more that I started finding my voice again and coming out of the shadows and just letting people know, hey, I'm not okay. And guess what? That's okay. I'm human and I'm not okay. The more I talked about it and the more that I just allowed myself to cry. I was looking at some of my earlier interviews and I was a hot mess. I could barely, <laughs> <laughs> I could barely make it through the interview without just breaking into mm. tears. And, but there was something therapeutic about those tears. And there was mm -hmm. something therapeutic about just telling my story, you know, letting people know what really happened to me, not mm -hmm. hiding behind the facade that you can create with social media to make people think that your life is just so perfect. Just imagine yourself spending nearly 20 years working towards building a career. You are making six figures and you are able to make it up that corporate ladder because I never had trouble getting good jobs once I entered higher education. My problem was keeping those jobs. And you might be asking yourself, well, if you were exceptional, how did you have trouble keeping those jobs? And the reason is because I was exceptional, it didn't take long for someone in the organization who was in a higher position than mine to notice me. And this person who's noticing me is also a racist. And so mm. as soon as they notice me and my exceptional way of doing my job and the confidence that I have in me and my abilities, they begin targeting me. And when they target me, they inspire others in the organization to conspire with them. And so now you're not just dealing with one racist leader targeting you. You are dealing with people who are all working together to get you out of this position that you hold. And because it's daily, you're, you're under attack daily, different forms, different ways, it really wears you down. And so by the time you, you lose this job, you know, they're successful in getting you out of that position, you fight this organization and then you run to the next one. But the challenge you have is, you know, you left this organization over here because you were black. And when you ran over here to the next organization, guess what? You were still black and you lose everything while you're fighting the prior mm. organization because you've now lived off of the savings that you've had, you've exhausted that savings, you are now homeless, you and your children, you don't know how you're going to pay your bills and you're saying, what on earth happened? I'm exceptional, I've got all the educational credentials, I'm, I can communicate well, how am I homeless? So then you go to the next company, you're hopeful, you know, mm. you don't put as many things in your office personal wise as you did the first time, because you're now wondering, okay, is this one going to work out? So instead of fixing your office up the way you did the last time, you're maybe putting a few pictures up this time. You're maybe putting a few little mm. personal things out. 
you're building your career, you're exceptional again, you start climbing that corporate ladder, you're in sync with your boss, but then that boss leaves the organization. A new boss comes in and guess what? So imagine repeating that same cycle. So you're now five times having your career derailed. And each time you are humiliated, you are stripped of your dignity, you are stripped of your confidence and your strength. Back in the day, you know, racism was more overt and you could easily spot it. And even though it was painful, at least you knew what you were dealing with. Modern day racism to me is more sinister. It's more nefarious because it's not easy to so spot. it's covert. Yes, it is hidden. It is not overt. It is covert. And when you're experiencing it, you can't tell that what you're experiencing is racism, that means that the people who want to be allies, who want to be accomplices, who want to be abolitionists, can't tell that you're experiencing racism either. And so no one is calling it out because they can't tell what it is. You wrote a series of international best-selling books called Hush Money with your daughters. I read that for Black employees, Hush Money is a survival guide for fighting racism in the workplace, but for employers, it's a compass to help them find what they can't see. What were you trying to achieve? Um, like I said, I knew how to fight. I am very effective at fighting racism in the workplace. The reason I was uh, contemplating suicide is I was just tired of always having to fight for the rights that are given to other people so freely. Okay, I wanted to give anyone that's dealing with any form of racism or discrimination a strategy, a way to fight back, to give them hope so that they did not find themselves on the verge of committing suicide. So I wanted to share my strategies for how I was successful in fighting back against these racist organizations. But I also wanted to empower employers who want to prevent these toxic environments by showing them what's lurking under the surface, showing them what's happening in their organization that they are completely oblivious to, help them see what they can't see so that they know what to look for, and then they can start calling it out. Because if people start calling it out, then your chances of preventing it are greater and your chances of keeping these employees are greater. And for the employee, they are no longer considering uh, suicide because they are now finding that they're not alone. Well, Jackie, thanks for sharing your story. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Jackie Abram is an author and DEI and anti-racism consultant in Aurora. We spoke as part of Suicide Awareness Month. If you or someone you know is struggling, you may reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by calling 988. It's available 24 hours a day. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.